Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts Paul Anderson here again without co-host Pete Wall because he is still away on his honeymoon or doing something that isn't this. Uh, instead I'm here with uh, another guest host, this is very talented short filmmaker Michael Beddows. Uh, Michael how are you? Welcome. How Welcome along, yeah hello, I'm very well thank you. Um, well thank you for joining us, that's all, that's very kind of you. Um so yeah, tell the listeners a bit about yourself, really. So you you're a the short filmmaker who we have met through, probably well, the days of Strange and Cinema being a short film review website, and then X Six Six Film Festival, I believe, is where we finally met, wasn't it? Yeah, we've been chatting online, and I've I've been a fan of the podcast for a really long time. Um, we've chatted on Twitter of all things, like most people do, back and forth on all things film and otherwise, and then we finally got to meet after probably back and forth in for two three years. Um, well, yeah, we finally got to yeah, meet at the Exit 6 film. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it was Exit 6, I think, about four weeks ago. We finally met in a yes. bar, of all places. Yeah, that's a surprise. If anyone knows me well, <laughs> that's not really a surprise to find me in a bar. So, yeah, just so you make, have you got anything film-wise you're working on? Tell the tell the listeners a bit about your films, really, to be honest, rather than hearing from me, because everyone's bored of that. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, so we've got a brand new short film coming about a teenage drag queen set in Blackpool 1997 called Sequins. Uh, we shot that over the summer on location up in Lancashire. And uh, yeah, that's going to be out in sort of hitting the film festival scene early 2019. Um, hopefully screening in quite a few places. And then I think in its future, there'll be some form of online release. We were really, really lucky because we had huge support from like the local um, community up in Blackpool, both the drag yeah. LGBTQ plus and also like the local uh, Amdram societies got involved and provided us with extras. And we also had this phenomenal cast. So we've got um, James Dreyfus from, uh, if you remember him from Gimme Gimme Gimme, uh, The Thin Blue Line. Um, the guy won an Olivier Award for his West End work. So he's he's all right. Oh, wow. Okay. He's not so bad. And uh, we also have, yeah, he's all right, yeah. we have Ben Wilbond that most people will know from things like Horrible Histories and The Thick of It. And also our lead actor, so he's called Robbie Gaskell, and we found him and the younger other sort of younger performers in the cast from a, an extensive local casting up in Lancashire. So some really new, fresh, unseen talent. They've mainly stage guys do, and this for most of them this was their first okay. screen role. So working with a mixture of like unbelievably experienced, award-winning cast, and also brilliant newcomers who were sort of hungry and fresh and really wanted to to you know to stamp their authority on their first ever screen role it's been a really it's been a blessing this project it's been amazing well, yeah i mean to get such a talented cast together must be a kind of vindication of a lot of hard work because how long have you been making films for uh so i made i've been producing since about 2010 that was my first short as a producer and it was called okay. the third one this week it's by a very talented director right. writer called felix thompson um, and that's a Vimeo staff pick, so you can actually go and check that out. And it's about three minutes, 48 seconds long. Um, and it did really well. It had its premiere at South by Southwest. And yeah, now it lives it lives forever online as one of Vimeo's uh, lauded staff picks. Well, that's a good start, to be fair. If that was your first film as a producer and it got done at South by Southwest, then uh, yes, <laughs> well done Thank to you. you. <laughs> Thank you. And then, then I moved yeah. into directing probably two, three years later. And did a, my first, I would say my first proper 
short film as a director was called Forget Me Not, which uh, starred Richard Soames and Bryony Redman, who are phenomenal live stand-up and improvisers. And it was written by Bryony, and that had a really good run. I think to date it's done like 28 film festivals. And that's on Vimeo as well, if anyone wants to check that out. That's very good as well. I've seen Forget Me Not. I do recall having watched that. I enjoyed that a lot. I'd forgotten that was you, but I have seen that film. Oh, so, thank yes. you very much. No, that's... Uh, that's um, No worries. That's up there. And yeah, it seems a long time ago now. I think we shot that in 2013. So many, many moons ago now. So how many films have you made now then, either as a director or as a producer? It sounds like you've squeezed quite a lot into eight years from the sound of uh, it. Sort of, yeah. So one, two, three, four. So yeah, I think I'm... Sequence will be my sixth short i may be wrong but i think it's my sixth short good well no so so you say festival circuit early part of the year is there any is there any sort of how does this work then because we've always said on the show is is that sometimes when we recommend short films it's always quite difficult for listeners to go and find them is there is there a reason for that is that because of fest film festivals is that because they have sort of premiere rights on them or that kind of thing or is is why is that in your experience it's getting better it was when i first started out that if you put your film online for anyone to view that you'd sort of broken the embargo rules of the website, you know, the, the premier rules. And I can see why, because right. why would people pay, you know, five, six, eight quid to go and watch a shorts program when they could just tap it into Vimeo and watch it at home. So I do see why they did that. Um, but yeah. it's getting less and less. I mean, some of the big guys still demand that. So just as a precaution, we often leave it off the internet for six to 12 months, somewhere in that window. Yeah. And then towards, we don't wait for it to finish its its festival run anymore. But towards the end, we'll do an online premiere as well and share it. Okay. I mean, I, uh, there's a great short film out there called Weegis X, if you've ever seen that. Okay. And that's, uh, I haven't, no. that's online right now. You can go and see it. But it's also still getting selections at film festivals around the world. So, yeah, it's... it's um, it's not a it's not as exclusive a club as it used to be with those festivals that won't no, show you. I think it's it's a it's a difficult balance to strike because obviously as much as you want to get into festivals because that's important, I would have thought you also want to share your work kind of as widely as possible. And I think if if you know short film is a very important medium, and I've always argued for it, but when it's sort of locked away behind closed doors to most film goers, I would say most most people into films probably don't watch short films, and I think that's a that's a factor in it. So it's nice to know there is a reason for it more than just an exclusive club. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I like I said, I can sort of understand why they originally did it, but I think in this time of of needing mm. to get an audience and finding an audience, and you know, I've with sequins, it's a really good example. So. Um, Sequence actually has a feature film script version and it has people attached okay. both here and in the United States who are currently taking meetings and discussing our project raising finance for us to hopefully shoot the feature next year. Um, and well, that's, that's very It's really cool, but what it aids their work for it to <laughs> yeah. have as wider audience as possible because I suppose in a, in a world of market research, you can turn around and go, this many people have watched it online. These are the phenomenal bits of feedback we're getting it kind of helps their cause in trying to sell a you know a longer form version yeah no all good all good so yeah so basically you're going to join us for the rest of the show which is good um what we're going to talk about today is we are going to be reviewing uh well we're going to do the usual what we have been watching so myself and michael will talk about some films that we've seen uh we're then going to review the uh much anticipated although kind of messed around with in production bohemian rhapsody uh and then we are going to do our top five biopics 
So, without further ado, we'll take a brief break. Without further ado, we'll take a break. What am I talking about now, listeners? I have no idea. Uh, we'll take a brief break, and then we'll be back with what we have been watching. Okay, so yeah, this is the regular section where we discuss what we have been watching. Uh, Michael, as you're the guest, I will let you go first. Uh, what have you watched recently that has piqued your interest? So, okay, so I, I was out of the country a couple of weeks ago, so I had quite a lot to catch up on. And the first one of those was A Star Is Born. Uh, finally got to see it, and there's been a bit of mixed... I'm hearing mixed things from friends. You know, some are absolutely loving it more than anything, and some are coming out and going, oh, well, that was disappointing, overwrought. So I decided to go along the other evening and uh, make my mind up for myself. Uh, what did you think? We were we were kind of middling on it, I think, on the show uh, when we went to see it. What did you think? I actually really enjoyed it. I really, really okay. enjoyed it. Um, and I know we're coming to it later in the review section, so I won't say anything, but it was really interesting to watch A Star Is Born and then less than two days later sit through Bohemian Rhapsody. But I'll go yeah. into more <laughs> on that on uh, the review section. But... I did really enjoy A Star Is Born. I thought Lady Gaga was incredible. I thought for a piece of debut directing, because I think it's really easy to forget that it's a piece of debut directing for Bradley Cooper, I think it's a marvel. Um, yeah. I think everything that is on a stage, you get... you feel, I mean, I used to be in a, a tiny band, but you get that energy, you get that thump of the kick drum on the... on You know, when the drummer hits the foot pedal, you get the twang of the bass. So I think... Actually, the biggest disappointment for me is if this didn't come out of the Oscars winning the Best Sound Design Award. Okay. Yeah, the sound is incredible on it, to be fair. I said it's got, for me, it had a lot to like, but I just felt it dragged a little bit in places. But yeah, as you say, it is a, it is a first, first time directorial debut from Bradley Cooper. And I think it shows, certainly for me, shows, I'd say, more promise than is realised in, in A Star Is Born. But Lady Gaga certainly is fantastic, without a shadow of a doubt. She, yeah staggering i would say i think i came out of it feeling slightly more positive than that i think i came out going not just for a debut but i did really enjoy it as a film because i I cared about Mm. the characters i felt the energy of the music performances and it was really nice to see mass appeal i know it's because of who directed it and who's in it but it's really nice to see mass appeal for what is essentially in most parts a two-handed drama in yep. a world of Star Wars every year and, and Marvel every few months. It's just really nice to see people having an opinion and posters everywhere and trailers everywhere and that level of commercial buzz for essentially a, a two-handed dramatic piece. That's really cool yeah, as well. That's an interesting point, actually, that hadn't really crossed my mind. But yeah, there isn't... Normally, this is the kind of thing that would get sort of not, not go completely under the radar, but awards films as such... Well, films released in awards season do tend to not do not pick up the the marketing count. I mean first man has done very little unfortunately. Um yeah and they don't tend to pick up a buzz or or a lot of hype and actually yeah a lot of people seem to be very interested in this film that wouldn't normally be. So yeah that's a it's an interesting point there. It's an interesting point. Yeah it's not that I didn't like it. I just I don't know something didn't quite gel with me. Maybe maybe more, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's but, um, it's going to be one of those Marmite movies going forward as well because there's a there's a bunch of my uh, cast from sequins the younger cast actually who are performing art students or touring actors singers dancers in a stage way and they're and they're very young and their twitter feeds and their instagram posts have all been about a star is born and okay. all the feeds sort of the replies underneath are from their friends of their age 
who are really hooking into this and absolutely love it more than life itself. I'm probably not that <laughs> enthused, but I'm also seeing the more cynical end going, oh, it's, it's a bit saccharine and it's a bit on the nose in places. So I can kind of see both points. I came out feeling like it's a really great film and I had a, I had a blast for two hours. So I think at the end of the day, without drilling into it any deeper, that's a film's achieved its goal if it's done that. Yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. Um, what else have you been watching? You said, where did you go? Were you in New York? Did you, did you say? I, I, I was, I was in New York. Um, it's my favourite city in the whole world, so booked a little trip out there, after, post sort of sequins and all of the one-year commitment of getting that off the ground, funds raised and made. Um, I went out there, um, took a trip around, got engaged. That was that was a bit different. <laughs> well, that's pretty big news, isn't it? Well, congratulations. Thank you that's, very much. Um, yeah, that's that's a reasonable time away, I imagine. <laughs> it was. It was very good. Um, and then uh, when we got back, we were sort of jet lagged. You lose that night's sleep on the flight back. So we decided to put on some sort of New York centric films, ones that we that are based there, are set there, that. Um, that you can watch because you've been walking around it less than 48 hours earlier. And the two that stick out, we sort of did a back-to-back with the original Ghostbusters and the new Paul Feig-directed Ghostbusters. Oh, how does that... That's an interesting uh, interesting double bill. Yeah, <laughs> it is it is interesting. I know that um, Amy, my other half, and the screenwriter on Sequins, she likes the newer one more than I did. I okay. personally have a two sort of hand approach. I don't think it was it deserved the hatred it had prior to it coming out. I thought that was ridiculous. However, as a huge Ghostbusters fan, I don't think it is a Ghostbusters film. It feels like it could be any brightly coloured, improv heavy Paul Feig type thing like and I love his films. I love Bridesmaids, I love The Heat. Um I actually really like Spy, but it fits in that mold and therefore I don't ever see why it had to be branded as a Ghostbusters movie. It tonally no. looks wise, comedy wise, the tone, the style of performance has nothing in common with the original. So No, that's an interesting point to be fair. Yeah. I, I mean I I kind of I didn't I agree with you, I didn't think it deserved all the hate that it got and certainly the, the whole the whole ridiculous issue that people had a problem with replacing the, the male cast with female cast didn't bother me in the slightest. My problem with it was is unlike yourself, I don't really like Paul Fake films. So <laughs> that was so I came into it. I came into it with like, oh, he's got Ghostbusters. Uh, I quite enjoyed Bridesmaids, I have to say. But yeah, I agree with you, I don't think it deserves the hate. And actually, yeah, the more, as you've said that, yeah, it doesn't really feel like a Ghostbusters film at all. And yeah, why almost call it something else, really, I suppose, yeah, is, is, it, it, is what they could have done with it. It didn't really need to be branded as that. And actually, what's really interesting, having been in New York just prior to watching it, you realise this doesn't quite feel as New York as the original two films did. And then I did some digging because I was like, why is that? And it's... Literally, some of the driving sequences were shot in New York and a couple of the exteriors, but nearly everything else, including Times Square, is all shot in Boston. How bizarre. I don't understand why why you... It's not like they, they would have a lack of money to shoot in Times Square, is it? No, I think they needed it empty for sort of that big ghost sequence at the end. So they basically built a sort of three-quarter replica on an old airfield, on an old military base right. of Times Square, which I get from a production standpoint why you do that. Yeah. And the Chinese restaurant, they base themselves above. That's actually in Boston. So for cost, they went to Boston or for production reasons. And you feel it because you watch the original one, you go, that's New York. There's the New York Public Library. There's the Hook and Ladder Firehouse in, you know, in yeah. Tribeca. 
you walk down Soho, you walk past the hotel that they have their first job at and you go, it's here. It was shot here. It feels of here. Walking through, you know, the grounds of Columbia University, you go, ah, they got fired up there on those steps. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's, it feels So did you go the to the Ghostbusters locations? Is this, was that, was that on your agenda or was it just getting engaged? Which is fair enough if it was just getting engaged. That's, that's fair. But <laughs> My super secret mission was to get engaged. Um, however, yeah. <laughs> uh, however, I did, uh, Amy did joke that I turned it into sort of a secret impromptu Ghostbusters tour. So okay. like on one of the first days, I realised we were only five blocks from Trebekah and the Hook and Ladder ghost firehouse, the Ghostbusters firehouse. So we walked down there and saw that. And then we were walking in Central Park and I was like, oh, there's Dana Barrett's apartment. And there's the church that the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man treads on. So I was like, yeah, it turned into a bit of a loose tour. And then on the last day, we went to the New York Public Library and jokingly decided to try and go into the archive to go ghost hunting. Um, you can't get access anymore, but it is a really cool building. It's really nice to have a little look around. Nice. And the so the original, how did that stand up for you? It always will stand up. I think it's one of yeah, two films that what made me want to make films. So I think it's never going to pale. And I think also the three Ghostbusters that we meet originally, you know, Egon, Peter and Ray, you just go, I don't know, off the page, I feel something in those performances because they'd been friends for years before making that film and they'd done Saturday yeah. Night Live together and they'd grown up on that improv circuit. I think you feel that outside of their characters without it being the improv that's, that contemporary American comedies go for where it's like, let's just throw everything at the wall and we'll see what sticks. Because there are many moments in those films where I like this this take should have cut two minutes ago and we're still riffing on the same gag and you're still not there so for some you know I've, I've done a bit of comedy directing I just yeah it's just it's actually more accurate than that you can't just throw stuff till something's funny it's it's the most accurate genre I've ever worked in in terms of okay. the script the rehearsals the performance and there is room for improv and those funny things that happen on the day but I'm not a fan of running five minute takes and hoping something funny comes out of someone's mouth, I think. <laughs> and there's a lot of that in films like, you know, I do like Paul Feig, but there are scenes in all of his films that are guilty of going on way too long. There isn't that in Ghostbusters. Yeah. Even the bits that are reputedly improv are like laser precision comedy and character yeah. character comedy that tell you something about them and about their relationship. Yeah, so they add something to the film rather than just be sort of, uh, yeah just completely off the cuff improv yeah it's it's a great movie not because they go busting ghosts and there's action sequences which modern films often lean on it's it's a great comedy because it's three disgraced scientists doing something weird and upsetting a lot of people en route that's that's the cusp of it yeah no that's fair that's fair yeah i love the original ghostbusters not so much the paul Ferg version but the original one i do love a lot um anything else you wanted to you wanted to see well not that you wanted to see that you have seen that you wanted to talk about no or... i haven't seen first man yet which i really do want to see before it ends its run in the cinemas that's that's definitely on the list um oh the moon landing itself is a delight it's one of the most beautiful cinematic sites you will see this year it's incredible i so that's on the list for sure and i know that um we've been caught up because we've been back and thrown straight into the cusp of of getting our film finished and made and all of that we've actually been coming in and slumping in front of an hour's worth of netflix so the only thing i would recommend off the big screen is um i'm doing the chilling adventures of sabrina 
because I was Ooh, sort of a. I remember the. Yeah, I remember Sabrina the Teenage Witch many years ago. Yeah, I was a I was a little <laughs> bit of a fan of the original one, that sort of poppy sitcom. But this one goes back to its sort of Archie comic roots, so it has more okay. in common with something like a Stranger Things, right? With but with more horror elements, horror movie riffs on old horror. In fact, if you're a cinephile or you love horror, it's worth seeing just because there are shots, there are moments, and even the characters within it are huge fans of going to their local sort of cinema and going to the horror night where they'll play the classic Dracula. Um, okay. So it's it's it seems to be made by people who actually love horror and are parodying it for comedy and also doing a pastiche to it in the scarier moment. So, yeah. Yeah. Worth a mention okay. on a, check on it a out then, yeah. film podcast because it seems to be made by people who love horror films. Right. So what have I been watching, I Hear You Cry? Well, I have not been watching a lot because I've been playing Red Dead Redemption 2, which is very good, which isn't news to anyone uh, because it's a bloody good video game and I've been enjoying it. But I have managed to squeeze in a couple of films this week. I've squeezed in uh, the new film from Jim Hoskin, who you may remember directed um, the very bizarre and oftentimes quite funny Greasy Strangler. Uh, this is An Evening with Beverly Luff Lynn. Uh, and this stars probably most of my favourite comedic talents working at the moment so we've got Aubrey Plaza and Jermaine Clement we've got Craig Robinson from you probably know from the US office you'll definitely recognize them if you don't recognize the name uh, and Matt Berry uh, from Garth Marenghi's Dark Place amongst many many other things um, so the comedy talent here is great um, all of these people quite well suited to a Jim Hoskin film have you seen uh, Greasy Strangler Michael? I've never never seen it no I've heard a okay. lot of reviews and actually based yeah. on the empire review on their podcast which they're big fans of it and going to the you know the prince charles to watch midnight screenings of it but the descriptions of some of it i think i'd already written it off of it not being my kind of thing (laughs) like i do yeah yeah go on it's an acquired taste for sure and it's it's quite hard to i mean i've was i've been reading around it and john john waters kind of springs to mind in places of some of the characters but i'd say kind of more absurd and and slightly unsettling than that it's certainly an acquired taste and he he, i would say that uh certainly greasy strangler and even more so this and even with beverly laughlin are going to be marmite films for sure and i think jim hoskin is going to be a marmite director um there it's quite hard to describe the, the kind of feel that you get but you're definitely looking at the completely absurd here with kind of very stilted awkward dialogue um some moments where you like i was watching it with my wife and she just looked at me and she went i've got to go and carve the pumpkin now uh, just, just like, I'm not sitting through this and she'd seen about 10 minutes of the Greasy Strangler and thought the same so yeah he's, he's a very he's, I said he's, he's an auteur there's, there's no doubting that whether you like or hate him I think is, is a different matter and I think yeah, so you've got all these these guys here that are very suited to this material, if you're aware of, of what they've done before. Matt Berry, especially with, with Dark Place. Um, Aubrey Plaza with, with mostly most, most of her kind of stilted performances. Jermaine Clement, again, you know, can play absurd very, very well. So the actors are very, very well suited to the material. Um, it's just, for me, the material... I don't know. This this film had some good moments. Um, there's there's some there's a nice dance routine between Aubrey Prowser and Jermaine Clement's characters. Uh, there's some there's some nice performances from those guys. I like those guys a lot. But it it runs to just shy of two hours. And if I'm honest, it's probably twenty five minutes too long. And some of some of the the more absurd stuff and some of the, the more sort of jarring stuff can just get annoying in places. If you see where I'm coming from, almost like he's almost like he's trying too hard to be 
absurd and a bit zany and that i find just frustrating at times so the the film drifts into the annoying and at times just a bit boring unfortunately it's not it's it's not i like the greasy strangler a lot but this isn't as good as the greasy strangler unfortunately uh, but fans of jim hoskin will will definitely lap this up and again it's i think empire reviewed it quite well it's got very mixed reviews across the board but i would say to you michael if you haven't seen a jim hoskin film yet start with the greasy strangler don't start here necessarily despite the, the cast um, I think it's going to hit yeah. a point where I've heard so much about it. I am going to have to get hold of it and sit down and watch yeah, it. Yeah. It'll be one I'll watch alone. I'm I'm not sort of yeah, 100%, I, yeah. I do not live with a, someone who likes horror in any form. So I think this might no. even be a bit, you know, unpalatable. <laughs> Yeah, so I would say, yeah, An Evening with Beverly Laughlin. No, it's not a write-off. There's some nice moments, and I think Jim Hoskin is a director that's... He's an interesting director, for sure, and I, I like that. I like filmmakers that take risks and make something that's a bit different, which is probably why I give this more shrift than I would have given it. So, yeah, it's nice to see someone doing something that completely, and I mean completely against the grain here. Um, but I don't think it's entirely successful as a film in its own right, unfortunately. Um, what is successful as a film in its own right, though, is a film that I revisited from 1998, uh, and this is Steve even Norrington's Blade, which I haven't watched for quite a few years. You sounded excited then. Is that was that just background noise, or were you excited for that's Blade? That's a good film. <laughs> I mean, that's a great that film. Is, it is a great film, yes. And I think there's been a lot said about Blade, I think. We've talked about it on the show before. But I would say, without Blade, you would have no X-Men. And I genuinely believe that Blade kick-started the comic book movie sort of trend to where we are now I, I just think before blade they were in comic book movies were terrible um i think it was sort of the antidote to the to the sort of batman movies we'd had before where it was getting camper and lighter and there was a leaning towards that's what superhero films need to be they need yeah. to be capable of a pg or a 12a bright colors and actually blade I think Blade is almost like it sets the groundwork for years later for things like Deadpool and darker, bloodier, funnier superhero movies to have a place in the cinema. Oh yeah, for sure. And I think I know it was something on the um, it was on the, the Honest trailer for Black Panther. I think they were talking about being it being the first uh, black led Marvel superhero film, and then they just went, "There were three Blade films, guys. <laughs> <laughs> there were three Blade films, like all the way back in 1998." <laughs> like, I mean, it is so. that first film is such a it's such a lovely piece of work. I revisit that one, and I'm actually a, a big fan of the sequel. The I'm a big fan of the sequel as well. The less said about the third one, the better, which featured on my bottom list of superhero films. But yeah, the Del Toro sequel, I think, is really, really good as well. I think it takes it in a slightly different, definitely more horror-based direction. Um, but yeah, I like. No, I'm a big fan of. I'm a big fan of Blade and its sequel. So yeah, it was just a pleasure to revisit Blade. Really, I mean, okay, bits of CGI haven't aged that well, but you can forgive it really because the rest of the film is is good around it. Um, and it even makes Stephen Dorff. Even Stephen Dorff throws in a good performance, which is not that common. Um, so yeah, Blade, a lot to love there. If you haven't seen it, then see it for God's sake. I mean, yeah. Anything else to add on Blade? I think, Stephen, uh, I think Stephen. I think Stephen Dorff. I was once given as a joke birthday present a, a heist movie <laughs> starring Stephen Dorff, where the twist is they perform their sort of bank robberies and stuff on rollerblades, and that oh, wow, is okay. as good as I've made it sound. That, right, okay. <laughs> that is all you're getting because i what's that called do you remember the name it might be called steel but i think at the end of the podcast we should do a a little bit of a one of those sort of correction sections you get on some uh, some podcasts where we'll actually give people the name of it so they can go and even look up a trailer because it's a it's a kitschy 
I would not say joy. Don't waste 90 minutes of your life on it. But the trailer is worth it. And I think it came off the back of better <laughs> films in that action heist genre. So, you know, when you've got Keanu chasing after his dad, um, it was riffing on that, but doing it as sort of a terrible facsimile of it. It's horrible. It's a really... It is called Steel. It's, uh, ah, it's directed go. by Gerard Perez. Uh, starring Stephen Do- oh Natasha Henstridge yep. of Species fame, uh, Bruce Payne, Stephen Burkhoff's in this as well. Um, so yeah, 2002. Um, yeah, so still, I'm going to check out the trailer for that. I probably won't watch the whole film because I always do this. I check out the whole film and then immediately regret it and go in. I could have just seen that in the trailer to be honest. So yeah, there we go, listeners. Uh, and Michael Beddoe's recommendation. <laughs> do not that'll if that ever ends up on any of a re-release poster because of this podcast, I'll never forgive you. <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough. Cool, all right, well, that brings us to the end of what we have been watching. We'll be back after this brief break with a review of Brian Singer's, or should it be Brian Singer's, Bohemian Rhapsody. Right, so here we are with our feature review of the week, which is uh, the film Bohemian Rhapsody, which people will probably be aware of because it's been being marketed for many, many, many months now. Um, in the directorial credit, we have uh, Brian Singer. Whether he's deserving of that credit or not, is probably we could do a whole other show of that. Um, my understanding is that Brian Singer uh, stopped turning up to work, had a few personal issues, and we won't really go any further than that. Uh, and Dexter Fletcher, I think, was, was drafted in at the last minute to basically finish the film uh, but doesn't have a director's credit here which I think is a little bit disappointing for him um, so yeah Bohemian Rhapsody tells the story the, well it's a biopic I suppose about Freddie Mercury and to a lesser extent the rest of Queen um, that tells them from the band start right up until their now iconic and deservedly legendary Live Aid performance um, so before we get into that we'll have a little clip stamp to this beat Come on. Now, I want you to clap on the third beat. What's going on? You'd know if you're on time. I want to give the audience a song that they can perform. So what can they do? Imagine thousands of people doing this in unison. Huh? Well, what's the lyric? So yeah, that gives you a little taste of the perform. That, that gives you a little taste of the film. Um, who have we got on acting duty? Which I completely forgot to bring up. Uh, playing uh, Freddie Mercury is Rami Malek, who people may be well will probably will certainly be aware of after this incredible performance. Uh, and may be aware of him from Mr. Robot. Um, you've got who else? Is there anyone else of note really? There's no other real big names here, is there? His wife is played by Lucy Pointer, and um, she anyone who really enjoyed Sing Street. We'll know her from that, um, which is an unbelievable Irish film from a couple of years back. I've not seen Sing Street, so I will, if, that's a rec- if that's a recommendation as much as Steel is, I'll check it out. <laughs> that is a solid recommendation, the the opposite of Steel. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so yeah, we've got so we've got Lucy Pointer playing his of his long suffering. Long suffering is that the right word? It's, it's, a, well, it's a very interesting relationship between the pair uh, of them, I think. 
I think how you've described that right there, trying to segue us in, is actually the issue with the movie. Okay. Right there in a nutshell. Well, take, take us in from there then. Take us in from there. What did you think? So holding up my hands, I am a huge Queen fan. You know, and I have been since I was very young because my dad used to put them on in the car all the time. So I'm a huge fan and I went in going, this is either going to be great or it's going to really disappoint. And actually, weirdly, it didn't do either. In fact, it doesn't do a lot of either or make any decisions whatsoever. (laughs) It feels like a very pretty and well shot Wikipedia entry because it doesn't pick an angle, pick a side, doesn't get into depth. I left it. Um, actually this is telling leaving it on the journey home uh, my other half Amy continually uh, had so many questions about Freddie Mercury what did that happen did that happen was he like that what happened because the film did not make decisions or showcase anything Rami Malek's performance is absolutely incredible Mm. but it left me feeling really sad because that performance deserves so much better from the script and the filmmaking so much better I feel they picked the wrong relationship to focus on. So for, for listeners, uh, we do follow Freddie Mercury. Um, and the segue in is a, as a, an, on, an on and then off again relationship um, between him and his one-time wife turned sort of best friend until he died. And I don't think that's the relationship to focus on, especially when you have someone who was known, uh, especially towards the end of his career, as being unashamedly gay Mm. who is flamboyant who is witty proud and brave in different ways through either his music or through how he just lived his life and they told told the story through the filter of his failed straight relationship which Mm. considering brian singer is an is an out gay director i find that fascinating how they got there yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting point, actually. That you, yeah, because maybe there was a focus elsewhere, and somewhere they've maybe the studios recut it to to make it different. I don't know, but yeah, I it's a very the, interesting I, point. The core relationship I would have liked to see is tell it through the filter of his relationship with the band members, especially Brian May, because there are constant callbacks throughout this film. <laughs> they say the word "it's a family" probably more than most of the Fast and Furious movies, <laughs> which we know are all about family. Yeah, all and, about um, family. I'd like to have seen some of that family. I saw montages of them having a good time on stage. And then the next thing you know, they're at each other's throats. And when they're at each other's throats, I didn't feel a thing. I thought, well, you've not earned this. You're going, well, it's it's meant to be upsetting because they're like a family. Well, show me that family. Mm. Show me the dynamic. Show me what's at stake that could fall apart. Because right now, I've just seen them on the road in a montage having a great old time. Then I've seen a ton of expositionary scenes with his wife to show that he's, you know, probably not mentally getting on as well as he should be. And then we're into the band having enough of his shtick, of his nonsense. And that's... It feels like a very, very long film that manages to not focus on or give time to or dig into anything of interest in one of the most interesting frontmen of any generation. Yeah, I'm pretty much I'm pretty much with you to be honest. I think my I had further issues with it. I have to say, I agree, Remy Malek's performance was great, but it just definitely deserved a much better film around it. Um, and I think my my biggest frustrations are it almost it's it's at times so contrived and so cliched that it seems to be like reaching for the biopic cliches just deliberately and picking them off the shelf. I mean, 
I'm not arguing that that Queen weren't talented, but I do believe that like the, the way they compose songs in like two seconds, it's like one of them does a riff, Freddie Mercury's then got a song, and you're like, no, come on, like can't we see? I want to see more of the creative process behind the Queen songs because they're not traditional rock music by any stretch. There's that one bit about Bohemian Rhapsody that you get that's that's okay, and then that gets kind of left on the shelf, and then literally you've got someone strumming the guitar, and then Freddie just goes another one, bites the dust, and then they're on stage again, and you're like. No, there's no way they compose those songs that quickly. Like, where, where's the rest of it? Like, it just, I don't, yeah. And it just, it just left me cold, to be honest, for most of it. Yeah, same with me. It left me very cold. I do think um, the performance stuff, when, when they're not flinging through it at lightning speed to show that they've been around the world and they're getting on very well and they're very successful. I mean, we are having the the jumping text that tells us they're in Toronto and Seoul. It's just lazy, to be honest. I think it's really lazy lazy storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. And then you've got like the the reviews as well. Like you, so what they did, they go, well, no one will play this on the radio. And then basically they, they put the text of like those negative reviews of Bohemian Rhapsody up on screen. You don't really see the band respond to that, which would be quite interesting. They just throw text lazily, just throw text from reviews up on screen. And maybe that's because we don't know what state Brian Singer left it in. I think maybe that, that could be a, a symptom of production problems, but regardless, it doesn't work. <laughs> I think Dexter Fletcher is. I'm an incredible, incredibly big fan of Dexter Fletcher and his filmmaking and what he does. And I think keeping his name off was a good thing because immediately <laughs> yeah. before this was the trailer for Rocket Man, mm. which is his, and they're pushing very hard on this is not a biopic. It's a star-spangled loose biopic fairy tale musical i think that's a much more interesting way to tell the story of someone so witty so temperamental you know as an artist and freddie fits in the same mold so i actually think when dexter fletcher was originally going to direct this i believe with sasha baron cohen in the lead yes sasha baron cohen walked due to the issues with brian may i think is my understanding of it because brian may and roger taylor were not happy with some of the on the nose and brutal depictions of some of the darker elements of freddie mercury that's what i read and i think this would have been a much better film for dexter fletcher's eye and the ability to do it without your hands tied behind your back because the other band members are refusing to pull the music rights yeah and I think watching Rocket Man, and that is a gorgeous trailer, and it made me feel more in that trailer than I felt through the whole of Bohemian Rhapsody. I think keeping his names off a good thing because the Dexter Fletcher Bohemian Rhapsody is the one I actually still want to see. Yeah, I do see where you're coming from there. I think that would have been better. And again, you know, it just, it's just as you say, it suffers from this film really suffers from the fact that you've got okay, so it starts the band, the band aren't doing that well. They get successful. Someone drinks too much. They they have a crash. They get back together. It's just like, come on, how many times have we seen that film? Like in that. Like... And it missed some really golden opportunities. It's well documented that Freddie Mercury is witty and has this very acerbic wit that is almost, I would say, drag queen-esque. He would put you down in the most cutting way, mm. but you'd laugh. You wouldn't be offended by it. Not, well, barely any of that makes it to the screen. And there are moments where I was willing them to do stuff and they yeah. didn't. So there's, for example, we've mentioned the montages. It's, we're going around the world on tour. We're doing this, 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 and this. We're so successful. This is going great. You pointed out the review section where we see it up on screen, how everybody hated Bohemian Rhapsody. And, you know, that's fine. But 
how do the band feel about that? And more mm. importantly, how does Freddie Mercury feel about that? And actually, there's a chance there to do such character building in what would be a 30-second scene. You yeah. bring up that text, you show him sat around the other band members, fag in hand, he reads it, he throws it down and goes, well, what do they know? And yeah. then you show them rocking it out in the crowd, singing it back. Because there you've shown he's doesn't really care what people think he knows what he knows is good and he was right in terms of what the public wanted so that's a 30 second cutaway that could have done so much characterful heavy lifting and it's not this is a glossy i mean it's never meant to be a documentary when you make a biopic but i just wanted more i wanted more of anything because at the moment this is a shade over two hours and it's all surface yeah no, I completely agree with you. There's no, there's no real depth here. There's nothing. There's so many things they could have gone into to make a more interesting film. As a result, you just get well, a shiny Queen commercial. I suppose it's kind of yeah. It's, I mean, it's, that's it's kind of probably, what you get. Probably, I mean, the music and again, I mentioned sound design on A Star Is Born. Uh, the the sound design on the bits where they are allowed to be on stage for any length of time is incredible. And what I heard they did with Rami Malek, they got him to sing after months of training and then laid it in with original recordings of Freddie and found a happy medium somewhere in the mix so you'd never get that uncanny feeling that you know someone is lip syncing yeah because you know no one could have a voice like Freddie so they sort of meet in the middle I think that's genius and I think some of the performance stuff is brilliant but it there's not enough of it what did you make of the the final scene because I I didn't really warm I warmed to the stage show of 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 the band um, in the, the live eight scenes towards the end. I, I warmed to that, but I thought some of the crowd shots were really amateurly done. I thought it, it, it looked, in parts, looked really good and in other parts just looked a bit crap. They feel very short film where you have less of a budget and therefore you have yeah. to wrangle 20 extras and make them yes. look like 500, <laughs> That's exactly 600, what it felt like to me. Yeah, yeah. It, it does. And it's a very strange thing because you, you want to know how it's hitting the audience, but on a film of this scale with this produce, these producers, these directors, you think that there would have been a better way to shoot that. I mean, mm. off the top of my head, you could have given a close-up of someone getting emotional over it and they're putting their arm around a guy who's obviously their dad, which is one of the shots in there. But you didn't need to do a top-down, what they call packing the frame to make the frame look busy. Yeah. You could have used a green screen. Once you get beyond six, seven rows back on a cinema lens, everyone's out of focus anyway. So I even know that because I've used it on a couple of, on an advert I made, there's some digital trickery there where you could give the idea that those two people are stood amongst thousands. Yep. It took you out of the moment. I think it the... did. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad someone else has picked that up because I think the guys I watched it didn't didn't pick up on that. But yeah, I found it really quite jarring. I don't really know why they didn't just use the live aid footage because I'd have I'd have been personally quite happy with that for the film ending where. Freddie walks on stage uh, and then cut to the Live Aid footage, maybe not, not, yeah, and just cut to the Live Aid footage. I think that would have, for me, would have worked better. Well, we've got those hateful Halifax commercials that shows if you're desperate to have Rami Malek <laughs> and your guys in the Live Aid footage, you can put them in that footage. Yes. Yeah. So everything else is legit. And that would pull you right into the experience that the guys we've been watching for nearly two hours at this point are the guys on stage during Live Aid. It would join the two things of reality and biopic. Yeah. I don't know why they didn't do that at no, all. No, it, yeah, I'm glad. Yeah, I said I'm glad someone else was on the same page because I found it quite jarring. Despite the fact that, you know, as I said, you know what? What I will reiterate, and hopefully you'll join me in doing so, is that Rami Malek is superb here. Let's let's not let's let's end on a high and just say he his performance is is something else. Like he's he's a, I've always I've rated him anyway quite highly as an actor, but this this will take him up to the next level without oh, he's a doubt. In- 
he is incredible. And actually, the performances of nearly everybody across the board in this, if we're taking it just on their performances or actors, are really good. I mean, I always like Tom Hollander. And yes, Tom I'm Hollander Tom is... Hollander, yeah. He brings that dry, knowing wit he brings to absolutely everything from the, you know, the Pirates of the Caribbean films to um, In the Loop. That slightly deadpan, I'm kind of enjoying myself, but I'm not going to let on vibe that he manages in loads of his films. And that's great, again, but, there's, but he's barely in it. Yeah, he's not in it. He's, yeah, he's, a man, he's the manager in this, isn't he? Or Miami Beach, as Freddie Mercury calls him. <laughs> he starts out as uh, their accountant and becomes their manager. And all of this is great. And all of this is, it's almost like they couldn't, dis- there's so much at their disposal with this story, they couldn't decide what to focus on. So they focused on absolutely nothing. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's, I think that's probably a good place to leave it. To be honest, so yeah, not not a raging success at all, um, despite Rami Malek's performance. Right, we'll take a brief break and we'll be back after this with our top five biopics. So yes, this is our top five biopics. Uh, well, yes, top five biopics. I don't know why I'm struggling or, or pausing or anything, to be honest. Let's go with, uh, well, Michael, as you're the guest, as we've already established, you get to go first. So what is your number five biopic? That's very kind of you. Um, my number five is Rush, the Ron Howard Formula One biopic about Nicky Lauda and James Hunt and their rivalry in the 1976 season. That is a good pick. It hasn't made my top five, but that is a very good pick, because uh, that's a great film. Why Rush, then? What's 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 got it in your top five? A couple of things. Holding my hands up, I am a massive motorsport fan, and I used to, and still do part-time, some racing. So there's a, there's a place in my heart for it instantly, straight yeah. away. And growing up with a dad who got me into Formula One, there was always tales of the Nicky Lauda and James Hunt. And James Hunt is a person. This sort of, in a world of motorsport, of mechanics, of things that could on the surface be quite dull, he was a playboy, rock and roll kind of representative of the world of Formula One in a rock and roll era. So that, and then, you know, the rivalry came to a head, pitting him against someone who was the complete opposite, dour, quiet, thoughtful and intelligent. So I thought it was a really great pick in the first place when it was announced. Mm. I, I do like, when Ron Howard gets it right, he gets it really right. And he did here. And I was lucky enough to attend a BAFTA premiere screening of this when it was released and uh, bumped into Ron Howard as he was leaving. And we had a little discussion about, as a motorsport fan, could I spot the holes? Could I spot the finessing of plot points? And even production questions, he asked me if I could spot that they'd use the same racetrack to replicate like six different racetracks around the world. And I was like, yeah, there I could, but there I couldn't. So there's a little bit of a personal connection. Mm. But actually, as a film... Um, I think it does the thing that a good biopic should. It's enthralling. It tells a story in a really pacey way, but manages to drill in just enough to give you a beat. And and sort of two-hander biopics, it's really tough to do that, to give enough one to the other. I think it does, in the middle, focus too much on James Hunt and not enough on Louder, just because James Hunt is the big flashy hero of the piece, you know, that you know hairy chested medallion wearing alpha <laughs> yeah. male so it was always easy to drift towards him um, but otherwise no i think great performances i think chris hemsworth and particularly um daniel oh, Brule. the guy who plays daniel Brule. daniel Brule, who plays nicky lauder are absolutely wonderful 
and really encapsulate those characters to the point where I just forgot that I was watching Thor in a racing yeah. car. You know, <laughs> it, it completely, which is what a good performance should do. You should forget you're watching someone, an A-lister. Especially someone, um, who, yeah, someone who looks like Chris Hemsworth. If you forget you're watching someone who looks like him and think you're watching a character, that's a success. <laughs> Exactly. And Daniel Brawl's performance, again, if you... Nicky Lauder is still around and still works for the Mercedes Formula One team, so he's always on TV, always. And you look at the mannerisms and hear the voice and you go, that's that's a damn good performance. So I absolutely love Rush. I think it also does the thing that the Queen biopic we just discussed failed to do, and that's bring a relevant and decent amount of humour to the proceedings rather than being very po-faced about st- telling someone's story. Yeah, absolutely. No, Rush is a, Rush is a good shout. I like that film a lot. Um, my number five, I've gone a bit cheeky here because it is a biopic, but it's about a fictional character. So, yeah, I'm, I'm having it because it's my show. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, this is uh, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, um, which I my, both myself and Pete are massive, massive fans of here on the show. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's a ridiculous comedy where the ex of the ever excellent John C. Riley uh, plays a fictional. Um, a fictional country and western star possibly based on Johnny Cash it doesn't hugely matter because the film's so silly um, well kind of based on yeah definitely based on uh, Johnny Cash well it, um, it's based on Walk the Line isn't yes. it the actual biopic yeah. of Johnny yeah, Cash so it's, yeah so it's a yeah, for sure. Have you seen this? I have seen both. Yeah, Walk the Line and Walk Good, because not I, no, I. I don't think personally. I don't think enough people have seen Walk Hard because I think it's a brilliant comedy and I. It's one. Of, it's one of the funniest films I've seen for. I. I have seen full stop. I just think John C. Riley's performance is incredible. Um, the fact, the way it pasty, the way it sort of takes the piss out of the the biopic is great. And I think if you. I think it was David Ehrlich from IndieWire was saying that in talking about Bohemian Rhapsody, weirdly enough, and he was like, a film like this shouldn't exist in a post-Walk Hard world. <laughs> no, exactly. I, I couldn't agree more. Po- Walk Hard is something that any filmmaker about to go into a biopic, especially a music biopic, should watch yeah. it because it's like a... It could almost act like a roadmap to avoid pitfalls. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I think, yeah, and it's just, and again, the fact, the fact that it, the way the the fact that it plays it purely for comedy, mate, it's just very, very funny. And John C. Riley's performance, and Jenna Fisher here as well, it plays his wife, who's very, who's a very talented comic actress anyway, who I often forget is in this. Um, yeah, it's just very, very silly. Um, it's very, very clever at the same time. The the performance where he's where he's accused of oh, your material sounds a bit like Dylan's and he was like I sound nothing like Dylan Dylan sounds like me and then he goes on to do that just incredible takedown of Bob Dylan in the way that he sings and then the bit where you've got you've got Jack Black Paul Rudd Justin Long and someone else turns up as the Beatles just putting on just awful awful Scouse accents and I, it it sounds like it shouldn't work but I don't I don't know if you're with me here Michael but for me it does I I love it it really does. It's a. It is a brilliant pastiche of the biopic. I would, however, raise question with the fact whether it's a biopic or not. Uh, yeah, it's dubious. I would say it's. Uh, yeah, I. I'll, I, I'll give you I, that. I think. <laughs> I yeah. I think you'd get away with it more if today's topic was um, sort of musical pastiche parodies. <laughs> Because then we could put it in with stuff like Spinal Tap and uh, Pop Star, Never Stop, Never that's Stop. That's true. Yeah, that's true. But I, well, I but had it as a biopic, so I, I take it's, your it's, point. <laughs> it's your show. It is a parody of a biopic, yeah. and it's your show, yeah. so I'm going to let it slide. Thank you. Well, yeah. I, pre- I appreciate that. <laughs> so, yeah, you're, you're welcome back now. Um, what have you got at number four? Number four, I have I, Tonya. Okay, good shout. I 
loved I, Tonya. And again, I'm going to draw back to Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, the problem that you face, I believe, when you're... I'm, I'll be honest now, I'm working on a biopic of you know someone who actually existed um, at the moment. And the pitfalls are telling a story coherently and finessing the fact to make it narratively interesting to an audience who are used to narrative cinema, used to fiction, but also not flossing over so much that it wouldn't exist. And also interviewing the people involved around the time or reading up on them from the archives, you get many different points of view. Everybody remembers an event in a different way because memory is personal. And I think I, Tonya, did the opposite of Bohemian Rhapsody. Rather than going, this is the general look and we're just going to tell a general story of it, I, Tonya, has those moments where a character literally looks down the barrel of the lens and goes, wait a minute, that's not how it happened. And some people I know from reviews and things I saw hated Mm. that. But I actually think that's a really brave decision that I haven't seen in any other biopic. And the brave decision comes at the fact that you're admitting that telling us someone's story and interviewing people with different viewpoints, they're all going to review it. And you're actually putting on screen um, for your audience the the understanding that you know that as a filmmaker. You're saying everybody will have a different take on how this went down. And I'm understanding that I'm telling a version of that, <laughs> but I'm also going to show that my characters within this would not agree with me right now. So I think that's really brave, bold. I think it's beautifully shot, and I think the central performance is wonderful. Yeah, I would agree with, with pretty much all of that. And I think, yeah, the, the the yeah, the fact that they've got people sort of correcting it as as it goes along is is a really it keeps it feeling very fresh, and yeah, saves it from being very stale. Because as you know, as we've mentioned, going back to Bohemian Rhapsody, the biopics, gen, sort of generic biopics, are ten a dozen, and as you said about sort of watching Walk Hard and what not to do. Um, like it's very easy to fall into cliche, and I Tonya really doesn't. So that's yeah, it's a great pick to be honest. I, I hadn't thought of it quite in that way, as in terms of that with the with talking to the real life people. But yeah, it does. Thinking about it now, it does really work for the film. So yeah, no good shout, good shout, sir. Um, number four, I've got uh, Martin Scorsese's the. It is Martin Scorsese directed this. I hope it is anyway. The Aviator, um, with starring Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, covering the life of Howard Hawks. Um, for me, Michael, this film really stand, stands out for for a number of reasons. Really, the main reason being, I think this was probably the first time I saw DiCaprio be incredible, in my opinion. Um, it, it's the first DiCaprio performance that really, really stood out as something quite special for me. Agreed. Couldn't agree more. I think, and this is his film yeah. as well. Like with other biopics, it's either a two-hander or it's about a band or it's about, you know, there are other people at play or a love interest or best friend. You know, there are always, and it's always more interesting, I think, for biopic filmmakers to tell it from the outsider's perspective because we as the audience are the outsiders as yeah. well. But this one, it's front and centre, powerhouse acting to get across what it's like to be in the shoes of the person we're watching. Yeah. So, and everything that is happening in his head is played straight across his face in those close-ups. So this almost made my list, actually, but it didn't quite. Yeah, and it's just, I mean, Scorsese is, he's a, he's a reasonably talented filmmaker as they go, I guess. Uh, he's, he's, yeah. done, he's done some he's all done right some stuff. stuff. Yeah, he's reasonable. Uh, yeah, so it's made with the, with the, with the usual the usual Scorsese sheen of just, just looks incredible, incredibly, just incredibly well-made, incredibly well shot. You've got um, Kate Blanchett here as well as, who am I thinking of? Help me out here, because I haven't written this down. Who does Kate Blanchett play in this? Michael, any thoughts off the top of your head? She plays an actress. 
She does plays Catherine Hepburn. She plays Catherine Hepburn. And that performance... Sorry, again, I was yeah. getting... The reason for my pause was I couldn't remember it because it's been so long since I actually watched yeah. it, whether she played Catherine Hepburn or, or, or Ava Gardner. But I've just realised by looking it up, Ava Gardner is Kate Beckinsale. Yes. Who's also... In fact, everyone's good in this. Kate Beckinsale's not normally, a, I would say, a great actress. She's got some, done some turned in some good performances. This is one of them. Uh, Kate Blanchett as... Kate Blanchett here is just as Catherine Hepburn is... Well, it's... It's creepy at times, to be honest, the, the the accuracy of her performance here. And I just think it's one of those films where everything just comes together. Um, sorry, you were you were jumping in, I think. I couldn't agree more. Again, I think from even the day players on this, there's just something very deep. It puts you in a world and it keeps you there for the whole running time. Yeah. Which is so easy to come. As we mentioned on our review of Bohemian Rhapsody, just from an odd shot or an odd selection or you know, on other biopics, spotting something in the background that's not sort of period appropriate can just pull you straight out of the fact you're watching this era, this moment. Especially, it does something else. Even the day players and even the sort of B characters in this are, to a degree, like Ava Gardner, are well known Mm. and well represented in their own screen work. So even if you go into a biopic, say, I, Tonya, I knew very little about Tonya Harding going into I, Tonya. Very little, except the sort of general controversy surrounding yeah. her so that performance only afterwards watching you know interviews and documentary stuff and stuff on youtube did i go oh it's a great performance but i was i'd never bothered myself with that whereas with an ava gardner with a howard hughes with a um with a hepburn you've seen them being themselves in a million movies so there is a real there's a real minefield here of someone making an ill decision or delivering a line wrong and being pulled straight out and it never does yeah absolutely it's just it's just it's one of those films it's just the, the complete package i think everything just work everything works well together there's not there's for me there's not a weak link in it and again it's just going back to to what i started on this is it's when i stood up and went yeah dicaprio is actually incredible that like i was dubious of like, whatever you think of titanic his performance is reasonable in it but yeah this is when he kind of for me sort of came of age as an actor for sure um so yeah the aviator if you haven't seen it find it uh what are you doing uh, what have you got at number three, Michael? It is your number three, isn't it now? Yes. Yeah, it is my number three. At number three, I have The King's Speech. Okay. So I did not know this story going into it. And I actually did not want to see this film based on the trailers when it was first out. And I got taken along by a friend and just loved it. I remember just as a cinema experience, walking in and going, well, it's about a king with a speech impediment. I always have an issue with that. I'm like, how much can you put yourself in the shoes of? How much can you understand the day-to-day life of a of a member of the royal family? And it does the clever thing of it puts, even though they're all royals, it puts very normal people around him. His wife is, you know, she understands protocol, but she's witty and dry and has a humanity and understands things outside of where they live. Um, played by Helena Bonham Carter. And then straight away you bring in Geoffrey Rush's physician and he's the everyman and that's it. He's the everyman, a view into this world of pomp and ceremony at a really, you know, tumult, a really um, difficult time in history for the royal family, for the country. And yeah, it just whooshed me along. And the performances across the board, again, are brilliant. I think it's shot beautifully and... Yeah, I, I, and I laughed, and I love that in a biopic. I really love to laugh at moments, um, punchlines between characters, character beats, 
So I came out of it just with a big smile on my face. And I think that's always stayed with me. No, it's a good shout, to be fair. This is his performance, uh, Colin first performances with the speech impediment is very, very well done. And again, it's the kind of, th- I'm with you. I wasn't aware of, really aware of the story at all. Uh, and then when you look back at sort of historical footage, it reinforces that the performances are great. So no, it's a good shout. It's a good shout. Uh, yeah, I, I've watched it again within the last year. And again, it still holds up even on a home viewing Um Again, it's one of those very small character pieces. I know we're at the cusp of world, you know, a world war, but it's small, almost, apart from the speech impediment, soap level character stuff. My brother wants to marry mm. someone who doesn't. You know, my wife has set me up with a physician who may not be as qualified as he says. Little things like that are, if you boil them down and the performances and the script aren't right, they are soapy. Yeah. But it just doesn't ever feel that way it feels like a character drama so yeah it's good good uh number three for me i think this is a biopic i'm going with it anyway um it should be oh this is the insider do you remember this film from michael mann no Uh, directed by michael mann starring russell crowe and al pacino where russell crowe plays jeffrey wigland who is a whistleblower on the tobacco industry have you seen this I've never seen okay. this. I do like Michael yeah, Mann, so, so I'm yeah, amazed. Yeah, so this is a great, great film. It's incredibly tense. I think it came out in 1996, so I'd have been 15, 14? No, that's that's a lie. Yeah, 14, I think, when this came out. And I think it's probably one of the first three-hour films that I kind of sat down with at, sort of at that age and was just like, Wow. That was tense for all three hours. So, um, yeah, you've got Russell Crowe uh, who go, undergoes um, a, a fairly hefty physical transformation by packing on a lot of weight to play the character. Uh, you've got Al Pacino as his uh, like TV producer who's trying to get um, Jeffrey Wigner's character to blow the whistle on, a, on one of the uh, large American tobacco companies. I forget which one now, um, but it is based on a, a true character. And it's just, it's Michael Mann, I, for me, is, is one of my favourite directors. I think he's an incredible filmmaker. And the fact he manages to keep this as tense as he does for the three-hour running time, I think, is testament to his qualities as a director. But it's just a terrifying insight. And it was, I think, probably my first insight into the power of the tobacco companies. Probably not so much, probably not so relevant now, but certainly in the 90s, um, big American tobacco were, were a force to be reckoned with. And it's just, it just does such a good job of that. And the two-hander of Russell Crowe and Al Pacino is is great. So yeah, if you haven't seen it, definitely, definitely check out The Insider. It's great. Really, really like it. Fantastic. I will definitely, that's now gone on the watch yeah. list because I do like Michael yeah. Mann. I just... Uh... Yeah, I've never come across yeah, that, definitely, that title. Definitely check that one out. It's well, well worth it. Well worth it. Uh, what have you got at number two? Number two, I have Catch Me If You Can. Oh, this very nearly made my list, I have to say. Very nearly made my list because it's great. <laughs> so, yeah, Frank Albert Nale Jr., played by, again, Leonardo DiCaprio. And he, um, before his 18th birthday, uh, happens upon a way to fraudulently earn money and make himself some form of a, would it be fair to say, celebrity in that era? I would say that's a fair, uh, fair comment, yes. <laughs> a local celebrity. And actually, he probably would have got caught quicker in a day of internet and social media as people share these wild tales. I, think it'd have, of, I don't think there'd have been a film if he'd, if he'd tried this today. I think he'd have been caught in about an hour. He'd <laughs> been caught really quickly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, it's, oh, it's an absolutely phenomenal film. It's Steven Spielberg. And I think Steven Spielberg outside of the classics at his very very best um, because he knows how to tell this deft story and a two-hander a cat and mouse story um, as Frank takes on the attention of Tom Hanks's uh, detective and I'm trying to remember his name Hanratty yes Hanratty rings a bell agent Carl Hanratty 
um, from the FBI's uh, fraud division. And it's just, I mean, it's Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks being allowed to do what they do best and have done for many years, which is take on a character to its fullest. And, and the scenes between the two of them are an absolute joy as well. You feel almost like a kinship um, between it's never a it's never a um, antagonist and protagonist well, there's almost, there's relationship. There's almost a, like a professional respect between the two characters, like where Tom Hanks, Hanratty, kind of respect respects that he's so good at what he's doing, and almost see almost sort of sort of see relishes the challenge of trying to catch him. I think is there. Yeah. I do get the impression, especially from the later scenes, that Hanratty's life has become as a divorcee living alone and working in the fraud department where he spends a lot of time looking into, you know, looking into um, microscopes over checks and trying to solve fraud that way. He's quite enjoying the caper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always get that impression with Tom Hanks' performance. And that's it. That's the way to describe it. It's a bright, fun caper with dark moments and it's yeah i love that film there is no time that is a wrong time to throw that film no it's it's got a very breezy yeah you're right there's a very breezy feel to it that can be that's not necessarily lacking in spielberg stuff generally but i think it's just sometimes lacking in films generally is like is a breezy like yeah as you say there's no if you're in a bad mood it will cheer you up if you're in a good mood it will cheer you up even further so (laughs) yeah it's and it's it falls into that loose category of film if i'm flicking through the channels late one evening just looking for something for half an hour an hour and it's halfway through i don't keep flicking yeah i just leave yeah, it on just leave it on no good shout good shout uh number two i've got uh, another martin scorsese uh piece of work here this is goodfellas uh the story of uh, real life gangster henry hill um what can be said about goodfellas that hasn't already been said it's just a masterpiece of cinema it's arguably as good as the godfather when it comes to sort of mob or crime films um everyone's great in this um even ray liotta who is not is not always the best actor he is incredibly well suited to this role um and yeah like what it, it kind of redefined a, a genre really goodfellas what anything to add michael on that one a lot's been said on goodfellas so i'm not going to labor the point but no, the one thing I've always loved about Goodfellas is it shows New York as this sort of stunning metropolis and the minute that's for your exteriors and the minute you're on an interior, it's dark and it's mm. ugly and it's gritty. So it's, and that's a gangster films, especially in the era that this came out. I think it was 90, was it 91? No, 1990. When this came out, we were in an era of gangster films that glamorized it. Yeah. The money, the drugs, the women, it was all very, um, the casinos, you know, underground gambling dens it was all exciting whereas i don't think scorsese leans away from the fact that it's seedy no and, I, and yeah, it's that, not over no, absolutely yeah it's kind of like he, he he explores the more glamorous side of it but then he's not he's not shy away from going but this comes at a price and is you know and i think that that definitely is needed you're absolutely right and you it did come off a well, I mean, we're, we're still quite guilty of it now. There's, there is still something quite romantic about career criminals that people seem to find. But generally speaking, you do get caught. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, it's 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 like comparing two recent films. It's um, so like the Last Oceans film yeah. that was, you know, I've not seen it, but um, from people I speak to about it, it's breezy. It could often be accused of not having much going on below the there's surface, no, but it's breezy. There's no and... weight to it at all. There's no weight to the, the Ocean Film. There's no sense of risk. There's no chart. There's no sense that they will ever get caught, which takes all the tension out of the last Ocean's Film. Um, it's, but it's breezy, and the people in it are charming and fun. And then you look at a trailer for something like Steve McQueen's Widows that's coming yes. out soon. That is again women on a mission, women on a heist, but a very different tone. Yeah. 
So I think there's a there's a way you can either make career criminals the heroes, the villains, or something in that lovely middled grey area in between. Yeah, I think Widows. Yeah, Widows looks looks great. I think I, d- I don't think that will disappoint. And yeah, it's interesting you say that because when I watched that, I kind of it did evoke. Oh, maybe this is how they should have done the the last Ocean's film. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You need yeah the, the grey area in between, and that's what Goodfellas does so well. You're kind of rooting for them. You're kind of rooting for the characters here, but then at the same time, Scorsese isn't isn't shy about portraying them as utter bastards. That no. Uh, and then you and then you uh, you end up feeling a bit morally murky towards the end of like, uh, do, should I be rooting for him? A bit like um a bit like drifting off onto TV, much like the Tony Soprano character in The Sopranos. Yeah. You're never sure. You're like, and I think David Chase said he wanted the part of the end of the Sopranos. The way he ended it, the way he did, is because he almost wanted to punish the audience because they started rooting for Tony Soprano and they were never meant to root for him. So yeah, Goodfellas is is much the same as that. You are half rooting for it, half wanting them to get their comeuppance. Um, Absolutely, and it works incredibly well for that reason. Um, your number one, then we'll move off of Goodfellas onto your number one. Uh, what have you got at the top of your list? We're back with Scorsese. He's done well on this list, hasn't he? He's done very well he's in done, this list. Yeah. He's done very well in the. Bio- Yes. Um, so Raging Bull. Oh, a, a grand choice. And boxing seems to be the go-to for the biopic maker. Because I was looking through my list not long before we started recording this and was like, oh, I've got two boxing movies in there. And um, yeah, I'm not going to tell you what the other one is, actually. I'm going to keep that to myself. Was it but, um, Michael Manzali? I, it was Michael uh, Manzali. See, Good guess. Yes. Good work. <laughs> um. So Ali was right there. It was actually replaced by I, Tonya in number four. Um, because actually, the more I thought about it, I thought I, Tonya deserves that place. Yeah. And I also, but then I thought about that. I was like, but then you've got like the fighter and you've got all sorts mm. in this biopics world. So they do love a boxing match, but it's never been done better than Raging Bull. So 1980, and it's a story of a middleweight boxer played by De Niro, who is rising quickly through the ranks, falls in love, and he's working for his first and potentially only being a boxer in that era shot the title um and i just love it i've never felt more in a world that i did i knew nothing about before watching it it put me front and center i cared about the characters i willed that lead character to make decisions that he either did or didn't which again i feel a biopic should do even with a biopic the thing is the story's already happened but I wasn't aware of it. So I think even willing someone to make a decision, that's that's a really powerful thing to be able to do with cinema. Mm. Um, and yeah, and, the, and then I won't ruin it for anyone who hasn't watched it. Watch it now. It's a classic piece of cinema. For sure. Um, the third act is heartbreaking. It's just, yeah. That's all absolutely, I'll say. Yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, it tugs the heartstrings without a doubt. And De Niro's performance is incredible here as well. So uh, it's it carries everything. I mean, the script is good. The filmmaking is good, but it just, it's everything is that performance. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, anything else to add or should I jump into my number one? I don't want to ruin it because it's my number one and it's a 1980s film. So therefore, as I understand from speaking to, you know, the young cast on my last film, for example, you tell them about a film, they go, Oh, I'm going to go home and try and it's stream a bit bizarre, that, that isn't borrow it? that. I mean, because what, how old are you? So I'm 36. So I find now that you do, you talk to people about aliens or something like that, and they go, I've seen Alien versus Predator. I'm like, You what? <laughs> like, yeah, I'm no, I'm 34. Yeah, so you, you kind of forget that there are people younger than you that haven't seen these films. <laughs> uh, oh, don't. I, it's not just films. I was in a rehearsal for sequence with our lead actor. I did playback on a Spice Girls song yeah. just to get him into the vibe into because it's set in 1997 so i've played back say you'll be there 
and tried to get them all sort of dancing and warmed up to it and said, well, you can lip sync to it if you want. He went, I don't know the yeah, lyrics. I've never heard this. And I said, what do you mean? He went, I've, I've, I know of it, but I don't know the lyrics. And I went, why? It's, it's, it's like one of the biggest hits of 1997. He went, oh, I was born in 1997. Yeah. You're like, oh... So yes, so, so, yeah, no spoil. Yeah, so basically, just we we will try not to spoil it. Spoiler films for the younger no. generation. So, so when films get back, like yeah, Rush, I Tonya, The King's Speech, I think they're fine because they're in the noughties and the two thousands and and newer. But um, when I get into eighties, even early nineties, I'm finding that guys are discovering great cinema. So I don't want to blow it. No, that's that's absolutely fair. That's absolutely fair. Uh, my number one then, without without further ado, which I've said about nine times this episode for some unknown reason. Uh, so Spielberg, right? He's quite a good director, isn't he? Uh, and in 1993, he really he released one of my favourite films of all time, and also my number one bar tip. In 1993, Steven Spielberg released Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. That's incredible isn't it <laughs> well, you know then they're, they're not a happy bedfellows never try that as a double head. no never try unless you're steven spielberg um yeah so my number one bar pick is schindler's list um and yeah steven spielberg is an incredible director on his day um and he's made some great films and i think in 1993 he made his two best films this and jurassic park um so this is the story of otto schindler who um he basically he kept a book and essentially under the Nazi occupants under the Nazis' noses was rescu- was helping Jewish families and rescuing Jews from the, well in certain doom essentially without going making the, the show too dark. Um, the subject matter is very very bleak. Otto Schindler here is played by I would say would you agree with this a career best Liam Neeson? Never better. Yeah, absolutely. Never never, never better. better. And. One of the when he was that kind of actor that and and I'm not saying he's not now but he's you, <laughs> yeah, know, you are yeah. he's missing he yeah he's now every poster is you know him charging towards the lens with a gun he's got a particular set of kind. skills yeah he has a particular <laughs> set of skills and that seems to be gravelly voiced running round and and not that great American accents um, but when he was doing heavyweight dramatic meaty roles he was never better than in Schindler's List no absolutely and just the film itself is it's just such a powerful piece of cinema and I was watching a a few clips earlier because I haven't seen it for a few years I was watching a few clips earlier just to ready myself for the show and it's just so well shot like it almost I didn't I'd forgotten how beautiful Schindler's List is actually is actually made I'd forgotten that Spielberg is capable of such sort of what a, a, a visual style that you would more closely associate with with more artistic movies. Like I would say, like I watched was watching the clips earlier, and it evoked. I don't know if you've seen this yet, but I, and a, another episode I'm shoehorning in uh, Pavolsky's Cold War, which is just for, for me the best film of the this year, but it's just beautifully shot, and it's done in a very artistic style. And Schindler's List, I'd, I'd forgotten how artistically it was shot, and that really adds to the power of the film. It's just an incredibly beautiful film, as well as being an incredibly powerful one. And it makes some really bold decisions, like the use of red in a black and white film. Yeah. The use of red done wrong or the use of any colour in a black and white film, can, as we've mentioned on other projects, can completely take you out of yeah. the film because it's breaking a convention yeah, that totally. you've suddenly got comfortable with. Although I'm not sure you're ever really comfortable in that film. No, but and, as you, and if you are, then you've got issues. <laughs> yeah, massively. But it, it could just tug you straight out of the experience, but it doesn't. It does exactly what Spielberg knew it would, which is the mark of a good filmmaker. Yeah. What's happening in my head is going to translate completely through a camera and into an audience. So things like that also mark it out as not just a straight biopic telling. Um, and yeah, it's got very noirish quality. Mm. Some of the sort of 
smoky back, you know, sort of using haze in the back of shots in a black and white film also makes me think of those 20s, 30s set gangster films. Yeah, like the original Public Enemy where, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, where it, and often a tale of either, a lot of it's about criminals, but there's often that tale of the good guy caught amongst bad men trying to do a good thing. Yeah. So I think that's maybe a slightly deliberate choice as well. Oh, for sure. I don't think there's any, there's, I don't think anything is done by accident in Gender's List. <laughs> No, it is meticulous, and the fact he can put that out in the same year as the original Jurassic Park is just yes, yeah, just it's just yeah, oh. ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Stop being so talented, Spielberg. Uh, oh, actually, no, there's a few films where he hasn't been quite as talented, but 1993, a vintage year for Spielberg for sure. Um, well, that is about it for the show, Michael. Did you want to add anything? Um, anything at all? You're more than welcome. No, thank your, you for having me along. <laughs> this is the open mic spot. Yes, um, no, yeah. thank you for having me along. It's been absolutely brilliant. I've, like I said, I've been a listener for a very, very long time. Well, thank you. So it's it's nice to be, uh, yeah, to be on the subs bench. So, so where it's... can we? Where can um, just as we sign off? I'll obviously sign off with a bit of our social media. But before we do that, where if people want to see your films, where can they find your work? Do you is there a collective name do you have a website or anything like that people can people can see them on or yeah if you go on vimeo and tap in uh my name michael beddows which we'll put um, a link in the uh, show info so perfect you can find most of the stuff on there i'm at michael beddows on twitter i'm at michael j beddows on instagram and i have a website www.mikebeddows.com which has all my short stuff on it as well as all my commercials stuff as well excellent cool well thank you very much for joining us um well you never know you may be back on in future i've enjoyed it it's been great having you so thank you um in the meantime we'll be back next week i think pete will be back next week unless he's extended his holiday again in which case more power to him um but in the meantime you can find us on twitter on at stranger cinema stranger cinema on instagram and facebook and again email us i've started checking those now so you can email us at stranger cinema at gmail.com and we might respond. Uh, in the meantime, thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back next week. Shut up and sit down.